on Main Street. My name is Alan, and this is the podcast about the history of the movies from the beginning. In the last few episodes, we looked at the development of the kinetoscope as well as the first movie clips that were made for Edison's peephole movie machine. If you've been following this story, you know that the kinetoscope was the first major moving picture machine to appear before the public. Today, I'll talk about the main distributor of the kinetoscope in America, as well as how it was manufactured and marketed. In early 1894, the kinetoscopes finally went into production. At that time, America thought of Edison as its mechanical genius. He had developed a number of products that had received universal acclaim, including the electric light bulb and the phonograph. He had also electrified New York City. While much of his success came from the inventions his laboratory developed, It was also his choice of invention, the investors who backed him, and his gift for charming the press that gave him such a popular reputation. Edison truly had a genius for solving practical science problems, although his talents were less about inspirational creativity and more about diligent research. He spent a lot of time picking through his extensive library of scientific journals and magazines, and he also learned a lot from looking over other inventors' patents and caveats. He admitted that he worked through his many failures to get to his successes. As he once proclaimed, genius was 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Most of that sweat involved research and bench work. Another aspect of the Edison reputation rested on the public's willingness to accept science as long as they considered that the genius of Edison was one of them. America was still a deeply religious country with a fair amount of people still refusing to accept more abstracted scientific theories, especially the ones that threatened religious doctrine. For example, at that time, Bacteria was still a hard concept to grasp. The idea of the existence of organisms that were too small to see, but capable of making us seriously ill or even killing us, was rather unsettling. Soon we would have radioactivity, nuclear science, and the theory of relativity. Science was moving beyond what we could readily grasp but Edison's inventions made some of it palatable, if not necessarily understandable. At the time that he was marketing a projector under his corporate umbrella, Edison was also promoting an x-ray machine. No one at that time seemed to be aware of the dangers that overuse of x-rays could cause, and the Edison name made the machines trustworthy. Our general ignorance also applies to Edison's skill as a businessman. 
As far as the public could see, he was a mechanical genius and had made a lot of money because of it. While news of his court battles and financial issues occasionally appeared in the newspapers, the limits of his financial skills were not really known. George Eastman of Eastman Kodak considered Edison a gifted mechanic and inventor, but he also thought of him as a terrible businessman. As everyone around him knew, Edison's main interest was inventing machines and solving industrial problems, usually with an eye towards profit. His focus on this part of his life was so self-consuming that he neglected everything else, including his wife, his children, and even his business ventures. Instead, he tended to fly by the seat of his pants where his business was involved. He was very lucky that his lawyers and financial advisors were generally honest with him. He hired whoever he could get whenever he had to, and he used whatever business schemes sounded good at the moment. As his career advanced from upgrading telegraph designs for telegraph companies to becoming an inventor for hire in the name of America's industries, Edison discovered that it was lucrative if he owned the company that made the machines he developed. This allowed him to sell those machines back to his investors at a profit. For example, an Edison firm made the light bulbs he used to electrify New York City, and another Edison firm made the phonographs for the investors who started the phonograph parlors. By 1894, that same manufacturing company stopped making phonographs due to the slumping economy. That's when Edison hired a man who proved to be very driven as his manufacturing manager. His name was William Gilmore. Edison had a gift for finding talented men when he needed them, and that included Gilmore. It was Gilmore who kept Edison's manufacturing company above water during the economic crisis, and he would be the man responsible for the Edison company's success in the movies. Gilmore was a heavy-set man with a small crop of thinning hair that he neatly combed. He seemed to be very tidy, focused, and demanding. He was a New Yorker and had originally worked at the Edison plant in Schenectady, New York. He could be fair, but he demanded competence. The most quoted comment I've come across about Gilmore comes from film historian Terry Ramsey. He stated that it was a safe assumption that Gilmore's first official act as general manager was to bring down a hard fist on a surprise desk and demand action. What is more important to our story than Ramsey's humor is that from the time that Gilmore took over running the manufacturing plant, he was the man responsible for what would become Edison Films, not Edison himself. It shouldn't be surprising to realize that Edison wasn't interested in making movies except as a way to sell his mechanical product. While the Edison Manufacturing Company assembled numerous Edison machines, including the kinetoscope, a separate department was created that focused on the making of the film clips necessary for the marketing of the kinetoscope. The department was created when Edison transferred kinetoscope production to the manufacturing facility 
And it wasn't just the kinetoscope that Edison sent over. He also sent his assistant, William Laurie Dixon, so that he could teach the production department how to build the kinetoscope. Once that was accomplished, he would start making movies for the machines. Unfortunately, Dixon and Gilmore would soon be at loggerheads, and it would only be time before Dixon left. To make matters worse, Dixon would involve himself with the Lathams and their attempt to make the idoloscope. More on that in a later episode. But before Edison transferred the production of the kinetoscope to the manufacturing company, the lab had built 25 machines in order to satisfy the demands of some of Edison's clients. As for the Edison Company and its films, 1894 would be their most productive year in using Edison's Black Mariah for making films, and the company wouldn't have a studio that productive again until 1902. I'll talk about those first commercial kinetoscope films in a later podcast, but just to keep the record straight, some of these films were made before Gilmore arrived. These included a barbershop scene, the previously mentioned blacksmithing scene, an actual cockfight, and a number of vaudeville performers. Those first performers included Sandow the Strongman, the contortionist Bertoldi, and the Spanish dancer Carmencita. The manufacturing of the kinetoscopes was undoubtedly done by hand. Also, the machines were rather expensive as Edison charged both Hollins and Raffin Gammon about $250 each. As long as the market was not that big, handcrafted machines could be made. The first kinetoscope bodies were built elsewhere, and this outside assembly of the oak wood shells probably continued. What the Edison workers would do was install the spools, the electric light, the motor, and the peephole microscope tube. A battery was also provided if the customer wanted one. Then they would loop the film through the various spools and do the testing necessary to make sure that the machine ran properly. There's good reason to believe that there were problems with the performance of the film loops. For a time, they continued to break, and although Blair was now making film to Edison's specifications, the film still occasionally failed when it was tested. There was also concern over the tension on the rolling spools as well as the compatibility of the sprocket design. It's possible that the design needed refining, that the spools may have been improperly installed or aligned, or that the sprockets were not yet of proper design to fit the holes. These problems seem to have been enough of an issue that it continued to hold up production. A month before the opening of the Holland Brothers' parlor, Edison explained to the press the difference between the kinetoscope, which we now know as the silent peephole console, and the kinetograph, his latest name for the kinetophonograph. He wanted everyone to know that the soon-to-be-available kinetoscope was not a talking machine. Edison still had hope 
that a sound and vision machine could be made. And at the end of 1894, Dixon did produce a Kinedo phonograph film. In other words, a film clip with a separate sound recording. The problem continued to be the synchronizing of the sound machine, or phonograph, with the moving picture machine, or kinetoscope, and it doesn't seem to have been publicly demonstrated. For decades, these two separate recordings were considered rather useless, but at the end of the 20th century, when advancements in electronics made it possible to finally synchronize the sound with the images, an attempt was made to bring them together. Known as the Edison Experimental Sound Filmed, it can be found on YouTube. This is the first successful marriage of sound and moving images, although there must have been many failed attempts by Dixon. In the clip, Dixon plays a violin while two other Edison workers dance. Over the next two decades, Edison would continue to pursue the idea of combining sound and vision. In 1913, he would finally have a system available for the theaters. Unfortunately, synchronization was still a big issue, and it wasn't until sound could be recorded on the same strip of film as were the images would it finally be feasible to make sound movies. During this period, as he had for the past five years, Edison was mainly working on the mining project although interest in it was fading due to the growing economic crisis. Edison's investors were tightening their pockets, so much of the financing of the project was now coming from Edison's. At the same time, those investors, such as J.P. Morgan and other financial titans, were wary of the novelty that was the moving pictures. Instead, it was a growing number of wildcat investors who found themselves drawn to the kinetoscope. These were the men who were starting the first kinetoscope parlors. They were less patient than had been Edison's main backers, but they were much more willing to take risks. Both the Holland brothers and the partnership of Norman Raff and Frank Gammon fall into this group of invention speculators. George and Andrew Holland were from Ottawa, Canada, and had lived there so long that they remembered the city's previous existence, known as Bytown. It was a town where the wealthy British lived on one side and the poor Irish lived on the other. The Holland brothers were newspaper men, working for a long string of newspapers in both Canada and the States before the two brothers purchased and ran the Ottawa Citizen in 1872. George had spent time working in the New York City newspapers, including the Sun, the Herald, and the Brooklyn Eagle, so he was well aware of the investment stories that hovered around Thomas Edison. In late 1880s, the two brothers had some degree of success with a phonograph parlor in Ottawa and were soon knocking on Edison's door in order to buy kinetoscopes. As for Raffin Gammon, Norman Raff's father was a banker in Ohio, and Norman followed his father's footsteps, but far away into New Mexico territory. He eventually partnered with Edward Doheny, 
when they started Sinclair Oil, while Doheny would become one of Los Angeles' big oil tycoons, RAF went independent and continued to invest in banking and oil throughout the Southwest. His brother Edward also went into banking, and through the family connections in Omaha, the two men connected with Erasmus Benson, an Omaha banker who had invested in Edison's phonographs. In the early 1890s, Norman Raff, along with his brother-in-law, Frank Gammon, and his brother, Edward Raff, joined with Benson to invest in Edison's kinetoscopes. Both of these groups of men seem to have been joined together in an umbrella group known as the Kinetoscope Company, which also included Alfred Tate and Thomas Lombard. Tate had actually been Edison's secretary. He recently managed Edison's manufacturing plant, but once the financial troubles hit, he left his job to dabble as a speculator in Edison's novelty machines. Lombard also worked with Edison and also quit his job in order to get in on the kinetoscope. The idea was for the Hollands to start a kinetoscope parlor in Manhattan, while Raff and Gamut would start one in Chicago. By the time that the Manhattan shop was being readied, the Hollands were back in Ottawa. The Canadian brothers left it to Edison's men to set up the shop. Tate rented a business space near 27th Street on Broadway. A large delivery of storage batteries arrived in late March, with the kinetoscopes arriving shortly after. Tate, his brother Bert, and Lombard installed the batteries into the kinetoscopes and lined up the heavy console machines in two rows of five each. A large rail was placed before each row. Palm trees decorated the store, and a bust of Edison was placed upon a pedestal that stood at the front window. The setup took place on Saturday, April 14, 1894. After the Edison bust was properly placed, crowds started to gather around the window to look inside. At noon, the three men locked the door and headed out for lunch. When they returned, they spent the afternoon in back, smoking and talking. Around four in the afternoon, with everyone getting a little hungry, Tate suggested that they open the doors for a few hours in order to gather enough money to eat a celebratory dinner at Delmonico's. That never happened. The crowds were in such demand that the three men spent the entire evening selling tickets, escorting people to their machines, and letting them out. The machines cost a nickel a view, with the opportunity to buy one row of tickets for 25 cents and a double ticket for 50 cents. What was supposed to have been enough money for three suppers turned into an opening that lasted until one in the morning with about $125 now in the till. After the successful opening of the Holland Brothers Kinetoscope Parlor in New York City, the Kinetoscope Company continued to sell and distribute machines in America. The press did their part in boosting the kinetoscope by publishing articles about Edison's genius throughout America. A month after the New York opening, Norman Raff and Frank Gammon opened their kinetoscope parlor just south of the Chicago River in downtown Chicago. Around that time, the Holland brothers opened a second kinetoscope parlor, this time in their hometown of Ottawa. 
By the fall, they would also open a parlor in Toronto. In June of 1894, Peter Bacigalupi placed kinetoscopes into his phonograph parlor and soon earned the nickname that Edison gave him of the Shark of the West. Kinetoscopes started to appear along the various boardwalks and amusement centers on the East Coast, and Thomas Talley, soon to be Los Angeles pioneer theater owner, had purchased a set of kinetoscopes for his shop in El Paso, Texas. This was the pattern of growth for the kinetoscopes, kinetoscope parlors, and amusement centers. These two distinct markets defined the way people saw the kinetoscope at the time, as an amusement novelty, not as a cutting-edge art form, nor as a future major industry. This is the image that Edison hoped to protect his reputation from. He didn't want to be known as the maker of novelties, but rather as the inventor of important machines. This is the same viewpoint that his major investors held when they saw his kinetoscope and why they steered clear of it. Even the early wildcat investors, while fascinated by the kinetoscope, saw it only as a way to make quick money. So did the young men and occasional women who walked into these parlors and dropped a nickel into the coin slot to watch 40 seconds worth of vaudeville performers. Edison, or more likely Dixon and Gilmore, would continue to encourage this type of view through the type of film loops they continued to make for the kinetoscope. While the Lumieres would show actualities of their workplace, their family, and their vacations, the Edison Company would continue to make masculine-styled films of vaudeville performers, including boxers and exciting young female dancers. But not everyone saw it this way. When the first moving picture machines were displayed at the Chicago World's Fair, the organizers of the fair chose to exhibit them in a special hall rather than in the midway where the amusement rides, jaded stunts, offbeat entertainment, and crooked skill games were promoted. The press also saw the moving picture novelty differently than did the rather cynical inventors and investors. While almost nothing is written about the opening of these parlors, the press continued to write about Edison's genius. They admired his inventive skills and mechanical imagination, And these machines that could record and display moving images continued to astonish them in a way that was beyond cynicism. Once the machines started to show boxing matches, the press again started to dream about what moving pictures could offer. The kinetoscope was soon appearing in Europe. While the Europeans were a little less avaricious than were the Americans, they too seemed to develop a dual attitude as an easy way to make money, or a splendid new art form with lots of potential. In fact, the next two episodes will follow these trends. While the kinetoscope company of Raff, Gammon, and the Hollands would be the main distributors of the kinetoscope in America, two other investment groups, one owned by the Lathams, would pursue boxing films, and the other, owned by McGuire and Bacchus Group, would take the machines to Europe. The response to the efforts of these two groups would be quite remarkable. Within a couple of years, the moving pictures will have spread a dream around the world, and world cinema would be in its infancy. Hope you keep listening, and thank you very much for your time. 
Thank you.